Hi, I'm Elia Einhorn. Welcome to the TalkHouse Music Podcast. Here at the TalkHouse, we pair notable musicians for thoughtful, unmoderated conversations and release new talks each week. Regular listeners will have caught recent episodes like The Smiths' Andy Rourke and Dolores O'Riordan of The Cranberries discussing their new band, Dark. Or Vince Clark of Depeche Mode, Yazoo, and Erasure with Jean-Michel Jarre, featuring a synthesizer tutorial by LCD Sound System's Gavin Russell. Check out these and all of our past episodes and subscribe to get new ones on Stitcher or iTunes. Today's guests are Ben Watt and Bernard Butler, two incredibly talented and multifaceted musicians who have continuously reinvented their careers in fascinating and both artistically and commercially successful ways. In the early 80s, Ben Watt released jangly indie pop as a solo artist before making his name alongside Tracy Thorne in Everything But The Girl. The duo was massively successful, scoring a huge hit with their 1994 single, Missing. Everything But The Girl have been inactive since 2000, but Watt has stayed very busy. He started and DJed club nights, remixed records for the likes of Sade and Maxwell, wrote two memoirs, founded two record labels, launched a radio show, and released two more solo albums, both featuring Bernard Butler. The most recent record, this April's Fever Dream, also features His Golden Messenger and Marissa Nadler. Bernard Butler is the founding guitarist of 90s Britpop icons and one of my absolute favorite bands of the time, Suede. The records he made with them, 1993's self-titled debut and the follow-up, Dogman Star, are some of the most emotionally evocative of their time. Butler left the band in 1994 and became a go-to writer and producer for artists in many genres, working with acts as different as Duffy and The Libertines. He's released solo albums as well as collaborative records with David McAlmont as McAlmont and Butler, reunited with Suede frontman Brett Anderson in The Tears, and played with Pentangle's virtuosic folk guitarist Burt Yanch. This most English of podcasts, which takes in tea, football, and rainy weather, was recorded this summer at Primavera Sound Festival in Barcelona, in a hotel room overlooking the Mediterranean Sea. The guys talk Ben and Tracy Thorne following the Smiths on tour as young fans, Bernard's concert bootlegging brothers Camden Market Booth, being able to collaborate with artists within 30 minutes of meeting, and Watt and Butler's fruitful collaborations. Enjoy. So I knew of um, Bernard, um, obviously from when he first appeared in the early, early 90s. And I guess you probably knew of me growing up, didn't you, when you were a teenager? Yeah, um, I knew um, uh, everything about the girl from the Eden record. And uh, in 1984. Didn't you, you bought a poster or something, didn't you, from a show? No, I stole a poster. Stole a poster yeah, from a shop. In, in, um, in Enfield Town, yeah. I didn't buy the, <laughs> yeah, I didn't get the record. I just got the poster. <laughs> just got the yeah. free poster. Yeah. yeah, they had the posters on the wall and I used to just collect them for my bedroom wall, you know, to be a cool teenager with, you know. And then I found out if the record was any good. And I heard it, uh, yeah, I heard each and every one. And... Um, I remember there was the episode of Jukebox Jury, which Morrissey was on, and Tony Blackburn and George, and George Michael. Michael. It was quite a famous episode yeah, is, because yeah. it was the most uncomfortable thing in the world. Yeah, and George they were, Michael's in a string vest, isn't he? That's right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and um, and uh, they reviewed... Um, uh, what they, there was also a Joy Division um, track they reviewed. Right. Uh, or a video or something like yeah. that. And there was a track from Eden they reviewed. Yeah. And I remember that really clearly. And I'm talking about it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I first heard um, 
I must have heard you play with the early suede stuff. And I mean, it's just the guitar playing seemed so exotic to what I was used to, you know, because I'd grown up playing chordally, warm, influenced by kind of folk and jazz, and it just seemed to come straight out of a different place. It's kind of interesting in a way. Hmm. And when ja- we, I mean, uh, jazz to me, you know, you couldn't get more exotic than that. You know, I couldn't <laughs> even begin to think about yeah, but that's playing guitar because in that our way. backgrounds are very different. I grew yeah. up with a jazz musician for a father, and I was the youngest of four siblings by about ten years because I was the product of my mother's second marriage, and I just grew up with loads of seventies music being played by my older brothers and sisters, and all my dad's jazz. So I grew up with lots of that mid seventies. Everything from Neil Young to Brian Eno to Lou Reed to David Bowie and then all my dad's jazz stuff, Quincy Jones and Charlie Parker. But I mean, your upbringing, you were quite influenced by your brother, weren't you, and his tape collecting and... Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, my brother did um, uh, bootlegging, basically. Um, Live bands, as it was in the 80s. So he'd go around to concerts and with a Walkman and... um, record concerts yeah. and sound checks and sell them. We used to, used to have a mail order business from our bedroom and uh, <laughs> used to have a catalogue that you'd type out and stuff. And then, but event, and then eventually he had a bit of stall in Camden Market, which was the sort of, in London, the sort of quite iconic sort of place for music and all that sort of clothes and stuff. And um, yeah, and I used to run his store a couple of times as well. Yeah. And it was amazing. He used to go, he'd go away and Stephen, he'd go to see the Smiths or New Order, bands like that, on a Tuesday night somewhere, mm. and he'd come back the next morning, or, or like sometimes during the night, he'd get coached back during the night, and so I'd wake up the next morning and he'd be playing this concert, and it'd be right. the Smiths at Salford Uni or something like that, or um, you know, New Order somewhere. Brilliant. And, um, and it was pretty amazing, because I, I was hearing, he was like, you, you, they've got, you know, he'd come back and he'd talk about there being a new song. Yeah. Particularly the Smiths. Well, New Order actually would always do, try new songs way, way before they were releasable, mm. recordable even, and there would be these long jams. And, uh, yeah. So I was I remember, probably at some of those Smiths gigs. Probably were, yeah. Because I used to travel around with Tracy when we were up at university. Yeah. We used to take time off from all the lectures and follow the Smiths around the country. And we saw them at a place like Leicester Poly in yeah. front of like 400 people. And <laughs> it was brilliant. It was a really good time. Yeah. I thought I think it's funny that the I seem to have worked with lots of people who have incredibly different backgrounds to me. I mean Tracy grew up just listening to disco and punk really. She was just into um you know late 70s soul and disco and then poppy kind of um punk bands like Undertones and Orange Juice which was again very different to my upbringing. And then when I became a DJ with Jay Hannon in, in Lazy Dog, again, his background was in, you know, um, you know, going out graffiti and tagging and playing with Cambridge Sound Systems and coming up through the underground of, you know, house, basically, and rave culture. Very different. And your whole kind of background to music is very different. I seem to, seem to be magnetically attracted to people who are the opposite to what I'm doing. So. I think if you're a musician, you're, you end up looking for the other side anyway. Mm. So wherever you are, it's because, I mean, my backgrounds couldn't be more working class. Mm. My dad was a battery warehouse manager mm. and my mum worked in a school and that was it. And, uh, and everyone around me was 
I was the only person in my school who listened to the Smiths or anything like that. In, in, in the 80s, everyone listened to Dire Straits and that was it in my school, yeah. if you liked music, but no one really did. And I was the only person who played guitar as well in yeah. my whole school that I'm aware of at the time. So, uh, but I left school and then started looking and ended up just meeting people the same way, meeting people like Suede who were just like, you know, they lived in West London, which was very exotic to me, Yeah, you know, and they were very posh. Well, they came across in a very posh and learned and very confident way, right. you know, and I was the, the, the diametric opposite. Yeah. You know, it couldn't have been more different. And I just wanted to hide my head in the corner for most of the time I was with them. Right. And, um, yeah. But, I mean, you, and also you, you, you say you've got the, the, this, um, you know, you had a knowledge of jazz, like a proper knowledge of jazz and stuff like that. See, everything I've always learned, I've always taken, like, the first, the first instinct of mm. and then try to do something with it. And I've never gone, like, I'm ne I've never gone really deeply into the Beatles, never gone really deeply into jazz. But there's loads of jazz records I know, but they'll, they'll probably be the popular ones. Mm. Like, we used to have a kind of blue, we used to have a Sketches of Spain. Mm. Steve and my brother had those records, but we'd play Sketches of Spain next to uh, Transformer uh, by Lou Reed, next to the Smiths, next to the Cocteau Twins. Those kind of records we'd, he'd play. In my, we, we basically shared a bedroom, mm. and he'd play these records every day. So that's, but I'd never go, beyond the surface with any of them really. And, uh, and I, I'm still like that, I think about lots of uh, music and uh, any, any sort of culture. I like taking an instant thing of, oh, I like something there, but not finding out too much about it. Right. Like, I don't really know much about Robert Forster. We met him at the airport. Yeah. And I know uh, 16 Lovers Lane, I know that record really well because it was a tie in like 87, but I never went back and listened to the ones that people went on about, like you were talking about. Yeah. I didn't know what the guy looked like. No. And like, you introduced me to this bloke, and I'm like, oh my God, I was listening to your record last night. Right. Literally, the night before. Well, I mean, I, that was, home. that whole early 80s London scene is, you know, that was when we were just, you know, interacting with lots of bands, especially we just got involved with the Australian bands who came over in the early 80s to London. Um, in the wake of the Saints, you've got all this, this kind of post-punk bands like the Go-Betweens and the Moodists and the apartments all coming over. And we just ended up hanging out with them because they seem to be based in in, in North London. And um, Robert and Lindy were living together at that time in Highbury. And um, Peter Walsh of the apartments came over. Um, we needed, he said he needed a place to stay. So he stayed for one night and ended up staying six months, <laughs> sleeping in our spare room. Um, but it was great, it was a great scene. and. I, I really enjoyed that time. It's really good. And he's such such a character, Robert. Writes mm. brilliant lyrics. Very witty too. Mm. Yeah. I mean, I got to the end of the 90s with Tracy in Everything But The Girl. And I mean, we'd been making records together for 16, 17 years at that point. And we'd done nine solo albums. Um, and Tracy had got to the point where she wanted to have kids. And I don't know, it just sort of came to a natural end. Um, and we'd had this kind of resurgent comeback in the late 90s with albums like Walking Wounded and Temperamental. And I just felt we kind of quit on a high. And I felt I'd sort of, I'd played the kind of venues I wanted to play. And I just wanted a completely different experience. And I actually almost deliberately fled the mainstream in a way and went looking for music elsewhere. And that's how I ended up 
getting into sort of DJing and electronic music, I almost deliberately went from playing big venues with Tracy to finding a little club to DJ at in London, 200 people on a Sunday. Um, because I ran into Jay Hannon, who was the record buyer um, at Black Market um, in London, which was the mecca for underground dance music. And we just hit it off. We had a similar taste in electronic music. And we kind of joked that we'd do a club night together. And then, of course, we did. And that's how it all started. But I, I just spent 10 years just trying to get away from everything else I'd done up until that point. I didn't want to write songs anymore. I didn't want to write lyrics. You know, as you, know, as you were saying earlier on, I was, I was interested in, as a musician, just exploring new ideas. Um, and DJing suddenly became really interesting to me, this, you know, piecing together of pre-recorded pieces of music. Um, I felt like I'd almost been like a painter for 15 years who was suddenly introduced to collage. And it was a completely different medium for putting your self-expression together. So that became really fascinating to me. Um, remixing, where you're just using the component parts that are, you know, given to you. And that's all you have to work with. I found all that really interesting rather than beginning music from scratch. And that's how I ended up, you know, remixing people like Sade and Michelle and Degacello and Maxwell and all that kind of stuff. Taking the basics and rearranging them, chopping them up, you know, almost like music concrete, just, I found that fascinating. And then adding musical elements on the top. Um, and that sustained me for a long time, you know, and then I think I did just get to a point after about 10 years of doing that, running the label, being a DJ, A&Ring other electronic producers, I just suddenly had an urge to get back to writing, quite simply, words, songs. And I wrote a book about my parents, which came out in 2014. Um, and then I started writing songs again. And it was around that time that I ran into you at a party um, in Pete Perfides' back garden. Uh -huh. And I think, I don't know, there was a, I mean, I just, I felt at the time, looking back, we'd come, we'd both been involved in projects where we hadn't actually been, there'd been a lot of self-expression. Well, Bernard had been producing, he'd been playing on other people's records, but I felt you'd sort of, um, you know, we just seemed to come to a point where we wanted to play guitar out a bit more in front of people. Was that right? I was literally standing in a rainy back garden in North London, not having fun. <laughs> yeah. Sp quite specifically. I mean, I know it's Pete's, but still, I mean, I d I'm not really... I'm not really well, it was of, a barbecue and it I was don't raining, like barbecues. That's, that's England, isn't I don't it, like so. barbecues, I don't like parties, I don't like, that. I don't like <laughs> that kind of stuff, really. I don't really like going to people's houses and, you know, standing around. Yeah. I'm not... I've never liked that, you know? Barbecues, I don't really get that, eating yeah. outside. It's like there's a kitchen there yeah. and a dining room. That's where you do it. And, but then you move everything there six feet over. I, I never get that. Standing so, on the grass. And then stand on the grass. And then you say, oh, well, can I have a plate? Oh, yeah, I'll just go and... You can have this paper one, even though there's, there's a real plate over there. And where should I, where should I sit? Where should, oh, I'll put it on my lap here, but there's a table over there in your house. And I don't get that, you know? And, and it always rains in England. Well, that anyway. came across when I was talking to you. Yeah, that. and that see. said everything yeah. about my life at the time. That yeah. I was just like, I don't want to be doing this, you know, standing around. You, you know. had some nice, 
Yeah, did you have brown suede shoes on? I remember that at that time. Oh, it's probably these. Yeah, big probably boots you had on. Did I? Oh. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, and we ne- nearly never went. I remember that night we were like, oh, I've been invited to this party and, you know, who's going to be there and stuff and we've got to go, haven't we? And mm. we don't like doing that kind of stuff, really. We like, we're quite, we're very happy, uh, miserable family mm. <laughs> wandering around on our own, doing our own thing. And I remember that night, it was raining and just thinking, oh, we've got to go. And I was like, look, we've got to go. We've got to be invited. It's rude mm. if we don't just turn up. So, you know, nearly, nearly didn't go bother. I can't even remember what we talked about that night. I think we probably just moaned about the weather and football and all that kind of stuff. Uh, I remember tell it, having a conversation with you about why don't you, why don't, have you not been asked to just go and play everything but the girls' songs, you know, and like, a, and do things like do the classic album in order and all that mm. kind of stuff. And you're like, no, I hate all that stuff, you know. <laughs> and, uh, and talking about guitar playing, but yeah, I mean, I was, uh, I, I definitely, I, yeah, I was, I was really, annoyed at that time that um, people just kept saying to me uh, you know you stop playing guitar you know if you yeah. you know you retired people st- say you've retired and stuff all the time people would say to me yeah. I'm like what are you on about you know I play all day long I'm in a studio playing guitar yeah. on other people's records well invisibly playing yeah, exactly. guitar exactly and so yeah. it occurred to me that just because people don't see you on a stage visually mm. that you don't exist at all mm. you know and therefore as a guitar player um, I didn't exist and I, I felt that what that had meant was that psychologically to me I probably lost a bit of um, <clears throat> personality to the way I played guitar as well because you were fitting in with other people's exactly well part of the sounds what I loved about needs, see yeah. I, lo- I love James Burton and Steve Cropper and all those guys that um, the session guys I've always yeah. rem- admired the people that can go in the studio stand at the back and stand there and that's the singer and do what they need today yeah. I think it's a real lovely power because I've always felt when singers you do that for singers you get a real buzz back that they need you you know and that's a really nice thing as a musician you know when you're <laughs> required you know yeah and um and so i learned how to do that and i was and it was also very much i, I tried to stop playing a red gibson 355 with a fuzzy guitar sound with a slap back mm. because of what happened with suede mm. and you know it's very hard to articulate that to people how that felt you know but essentially i i did my best to stop being me mm. for about 15 years. Well, it's not dissimilar to what I was doing. Right. I was stopping being me by being a DJ and trying to do something completely mm. different and not be that bloke who was, you know, with Tracy and everything but the girl. Mm. It's quite interesting in a way. It is, but as we were saying yesterday, <laughs> I did it because there was someone else doing it yeah. for me. And that fucked my head up. Yeah. Absolutely. People just won't really let that cross their minds, you know. Yeah. But that's not really acceptable for me to say that, I don't think. Right. You know, people don't really want to have it. But it's true. Mm. You know, absolutely. Watching somebody doing your thing with your guitar, looking mm. a bit like you, playing your songs. However, you know, reasonable it seems and logical to other people, it's a major fuck up in your head. Mm. And it was for me for about 15 years. Mm. And it still is... Uh, completely bonkers when I think about it no mm. one ever says that and no one's ever said that to me and uh, whenever people talk about suede and all that kind of stuff to me they never say that to me mm. no one's ever asked that when that's the major biggest part of it for me mm. that's uh, but anyway that's why I went off and was really happy learning to play 
uh, like Steve Cropper and all that kind of stuff and, and you know, and explored all these things. And I learned so much, played with Bert Jansch for 10 years, you know, te last 10 years of this guy's life, you know, mm. uh, one of the greatest guitarists ever. And I played with him and hung out with him and um, did all these things, which were great. And I'm really glad I learned the craft, but I think it is a bit of a meet the devil at the crossroads kind of situation where you decide I'm going to go and do that. And, and if that means that I lose everything I've got and that no one knows I'm, I exist anymore, mm. And uh, then at least I'll come out learning stuff, you know, mm. which I did. And I came out learning, um, knowing how to play in a completely different way, particularly with Bert, which I think you benefit from greatly. Because, yeah. because with Bert, I, I, the first day I met him and I was asked to play, I was asked to play with Bert, go and meet him and go and play with him on video the first time I met him, you know. Right. And uh, I was just like, oh my God. You know, you just take one look at him. He doesn't even put his head up. And uh, he just goes to me, you want tea? Like this. And I said, yeah. And, and then he just comes back with the tea and he said, there. And he just starts playing. And then I just had to start playing with him. And uh, so I played electric. And um, I just thought, there's no way I'm going to play an acoustic guitar with this guy. Yeah. You know, because that's his thing. Because yeah. that's his thing. But I got to know him and I got to know that he doesn't, he couldn't play electric really. And uh, so I played fingers with an electric. Mm. So with my thumbs and a, quite a bassy sound mm. and uh, to fit in because I thought with an acoustic, it's all quite. Uh, rhythmic and quite uh, uh, sonically high, and I thought having something bassy yeah. underneath it would be really cool, and uh, not get in his way. Mm. And uh, and anyway, I developed playing that that way, and I got really into that, not using plectrums and playing with my fingers and thumbs and playing bassy semi-acoustics. Mm. And um, and then it came round to you again. By the time it came round to you, that was again you had an acoustic guitar, yeah. and most of what you're doing was acoustic. Yeah, and so straight away it was the same thing it worked you yeah. know just playing quite bluesy overdriven sound yeah quite simple things and it was less about the notes and more about the drama of the sound i thought that fitted in with what you were doing mm. and i thought it gave it a sort of you know there's a darker edge to the to the words than was in the music i felt with some of the songs yeah the first some that you know young man's game and stuff they're not quite as you know they're, they're pretty nice you know sometimes so adding that kind of uh, noise to it yeah. gives it a different sound you know where I think wakes you up yeah. and alerts you to words and well, stuff well that was I, I was very aware of that you know my instinct with music is to make it quite warm and suspended and then for me the edge comes from the unsentimentality in the lyric mm -hmm. and I always felt if it worked you would you'd be able to dramatise that side of it you know add mm -hmm. that kind of thundercloud underneath the music I mean, when we first got together, it was a disaster. I mean, yeah. I hadn't got any songs and you came round to my house with a broken leg. But I was still in the mode then of just like, I'm going to I'm gonna be Vinnie Riley today or something. Yeah. You know, I'm, gonna, I'm still doing, I just bought a strap, I broke my leg, I bought a strap, which I love and I love yeah. what I did with it. But um, again, I was still in that mode of just like, God, what can I do now to be as unlike me as possible? You were, and you just pulled and, uh, my Fender Jaguar off the wall and started playing like Tom Verlaine. And I thought, right. what's going on here? This isn't like, yeah. like well, you. They, been, yeah, they, because that's, that's the thing that people, I'd meet people like you who wanted me, who didn't know me, and but knew me from a certain period, right. who wanted me to do that thing, because that's mm. all I do all day long. But I just weren't aware of what was going on in my head, that, that's, mm. that I, I just couldn't cope with that for years and years. Mm. And it's ridiculous things, be honest you know I sometimes think about this stuff and or or actually I think about this 
stuff 80% of my life every mm. day in my head, but don't ever say it because yeah. you're watching people do their job and, uh, you know, serving breakfast and driving around and stuff like that. And you think, what, what, what a bizarre way of talking so what, about music. You so know, you're if, talking about this articulation of music and, yeah. and, and playing and character and personalities that are going on in your head, fighting you, you know, all the time. So and, what happened <laughs> in... Because there was about six months between that first meeting where we we didn't really see eye to eye musically what we could do. I didn't have any songs at that point. And then six months later, I come back to you with three or four songs from Hendra. Yeah. Come round to your studio, mm. sit in front of you and go, they go like this. Why were you suddenly able to slip into that? Sound. Because it's the music, because I understood the music and right, what, that came what I, across like the Bert Yanch stuff. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Okay. and I, what I thought you were doing the first time we met, I thought, are you, you know, DJ, DJ? You know, I don't understand that. I'm, uh, you yeah. know, I, I, it's time to get out of the delays and you know stuff like that and do some interesting stuff. Let's make Spirit of Eden, but with beats, you know, <laughs> that kind of stuff. That's what's going to happen here. I know that, and um, and it was the polar opposite actually, and. Um, but when, yeah, and you played me Hendra and uh, Young Man, oh, I think it's Young Man's Golden Game. Ratio, or, think, Golden Ratio, I think. Golden Ratio. Yeah. And uh, in my studio, and I just picked up my 355 and thought, oh, this is, what's the easiest thing that can happen here? Yeah. And uh, so so I came, I've come full circle around to um, using that same guitar because I, I'd gone away from it and actually all that sort of stuff of... Uh, trying to fit in with Bert Yanch and stuff was using semi-acoustics and I came back to mm. what I did in the first place. So essentially, and by the time it's got to this record, Fever Dream, it's now much more like where I was in the first place. But I think I'm, I just think I'm better, better articulating now mm. uh, on the guitar, and I'm technically better. And but there must be, I I think it just because we never really talk about it now, we just start, and I never really say play this, play that. You just sort of go, and it just seems to work. We just—I think we find the spaces now, which is good. Well, you, but you learn from, um, you know, you learn when you're playing, when you're growing up around people, and you, you know, someone go, someone come around to your house or something like that, or you're trying to impress a girl or something like that. You know, you're playing a record. They say, "Get this shit off," you know. Then you know it's a no-no. But most of the time, if you're in a good place, someone just set, just lets it go. So, yeah. And you just and you're comfortable and you're comfortable not you're comfortable like maybe that's an English thing it's definitely what I'm used to but it's you know you're comfortable not because someone's saying you're amazing this is brilliant yeah, everything yeah. in my life is now coming I'm in Barcelona sitting in the sun on my back it's yeah. amazing isn't it yeah yeah, yeah and yeah. I'm not really like that I'm just if if I'm here it's because everything's all right and I don't have to go on about it but if I don't like something I'm out the door mm. and um and in the same way. I'm from producing. You go in a room with people, and I don't. I don't try and. Often you meet someone for the first time in a production situation or a songwriting situation, and you have to be making music within half an hour. You know, otherwise it's it doesn't work. And I'm very used to having to be able to find something mm. that somebody's comfortable with. And I know that once I do musically. You don't have to say this is amazing. You know that if they're still there two hours later, it's probably because you're doing the right thing. Mm. Do you see what I mean? And so I think it's that. It's, you don't have to be going on about, mm. that's amazing. You're amazing at the guitar. It's, it's incredible. <laughs> you know, it's just, it, it's, it's, it, you start fitting into patterns that are comfortable, mm. you know, for the right reasons. And then you get to the point, you know, two albums down the line where you have to destroy that as well. Because yeah. it's too comfortable. Yeah. And I think that's how most of these sort of... Uh, artistic sort of patterns work. Mm. I suppose I'm aware when I write now, because I, I do write with all these open tunics and these kind of suspensions and unresolved chords, I'm kind of aware in the back of my mind that 
you will probably spell it out a bit more underneath me, which I quite like. I leave it quite open and loose. And then I just think, I know Bernard's just going to go crunch at one point. And this big suspended A minor chord where you're not quite sure whether there's a bit of F major in it and a bit of G major in it as well, you'll just go, right, that's a bit E minor to me. It's because I don't know and the you chords. Go black, but I... it's not, it really works. <laughs> Because you play this like simple crunch under it, and I think it uh. it's it's a good contrast. I think. I think when you um, the way I play piano is that I look for because I can't really play the piano, so I play piano like a guitar player with your left hand is just one the bass note. That's yeah. it. The root note. The root note. And then the the, the triad, triad on the top. Triad on the top, and that's yeah. it. And then but so basically the the left hand is always guiding you, in it. and I always think of the guitar like that. That's like the kick and the snare. Yeah. So boom, jam, boom, jam. Yeah. And I always do that, and and so it's in the same way when you're playing quite wishy washy, beautiful suspended things in an open tuning. I just think right, where's the kick? Yeah. Where's the bass note? And uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but then there are songs like. Uh, um, like Golden Ratio or something, where I'm playing a much more obvious sort of bossa nova-y, delayed thing. And then you do all that loose stuff and you go in the gaps, a bit more ragged. I like all that yeah. too. It's good. Yeah, it's good playing guitar. I mean, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a daft thing and it's, um, yeah, it's, it's very hard to, I can't really talk about it with anybody I know. I never do, never at home or anything like that. And it, what you do is, but it, it, you know, you, I wonder if people know how much it consumes you all the time as a musician, mm. you know, without, when you're just going around, your, you know, your daily stuff, mm. you know, what you're doing and what you're about to do and, you know, thinking, visualizing your hands and all that kind of stuff, mm. you know, yeah. I don't think I ever really considered the role of the press or the role of fans when we were starting out. Nowadays, you're absolutely wrapped up with that world. The internet has brought everybody together. The moment you release something, it's available to all. It's available to critics, it's available to fans. Fans can tell you exactly what they think about it on Twitter two minutes later. They can DM you if they have to be, you know, all that kind of stuff. It's very immediate. And I think I think bands who start now must be incredibly self-conscious in a way, which I don't think is necessarily a very good thing. When I was starting out in the early 80s, there was no internet. If you wanted to speak to your fans, um, they might write you a fan letter and you would handwrite a postcard back to them. That's what we used to do. And um, the press was really just the NME and possibly Melody Maker and Sounds, um, weekly inky newspapers, which, you know, gave you the rest of the information. And the rest of the time, you're just out there on your own, just listening to music, going to gigs, 
you know, trying to make records. And I also felt very strongly that for the, for the most part of, in fact, for the entirety of everything but the girls' existence from the early 80s up to the mid to late 90s, there was a sense of progress in music. Technological change was coming in at a regular pace. Um, you know, there was the advent of um, affordable drum machines, affordable synthesizers, um, which sort of changed the landscape of guitar bands. You had to start to absorb that into your music. Production techniques, digital reverbs, um, harmonizers, all these sort of things started to populate the recording experience. And you had to have a dexterity in your production, which perhaps you didn't have to have in the early days of punk and post-punk. And then suddenly in comes sampling, which again shifts the goalposts completely. And I felt as a band, we were constantly having to absorb these technological advances, retain a signature sound, which to some extent was quite easy with Tracy's voice because it was such a unique sound. And we had a, a, a particular way of writing songs which stayed fairly consistent. And that I think that whole process of absorbing technological change went on until about in the mid 90s. And then suddenly we haven't really had a big technological breakthrough since that era. What the big technological breakthroughs have been in distribution and in the boundaries to production where people can record very cheaply at home. And I think what's happened since the mid 90s is pop has almost stopped developing and it's just now atomized into hundreds and hundreds of different niche genres, which are all as permissible as the other. You can be retro, you can be futuristic, you can be dubby, you can be, you know, really niche and underground and it's all cool and it all works. Whereas I felt with everything but the girl, there was a sense of progress. You had to be stepping through, changing, making different records each time. Um, I don't know, did you ever get that when you were, I suppose you came at it later. You weren't really making records till the early nineties. So mm. I was very aware of it. Now it seems all bets are off. I can make a folk rock record like Hendra or Fever Dream and it's completely fine. Okay, so it's heavily influenced probably by a lot of stuff I was growing up listening to in the 70s, but that's cool. And then last night I'm at Primavera watching Floating Points and that's cool too. It all coexists. Whereas I don't think that coexistence was as allowable in a way before. The, the thing is the 80s was uh, slammed for that reason, wasn't it? For just people just going through as many technological changes as, as was possible, you mm. know, reverbs and all that kind of stuff and, and video and, uh, yeah, sonically, you know, you the synths and drum machines and all mm. that kind of stuff. So the 90s was a big reaction to it. Mm. I don't think now you'd have that, like you say, because actually there's no reactions anymore. You don't really get reactions in music. And I think in those days you still had tribes and uh, tribes of people who, who you, you only listen to this and, yeah. and you only listen to that. Whereas now, I mean, look at that. Last night, the whole thing is a tribe. Yeah. You know, one big melting pot. Yeah, the and band so, is the audience. The audience is the band. Yeah. You know, it's... There's no division. We were watching Tame Impala and all the guys on stage just look like everybody in the audience. It's just one great big community, you know, and I think that's, that's changed as well. You don't get this sense of a, a band coming along with a whole new look and a whole new sound, and they're there to bury rock and roll. You know, that doesn't really happen anymore. No. It almost seems impossible. Yeah, I can't see it happening. 
but yeah, I think that I think there's there's it's it's probably what you always want. You always want everything to be mixed up and be fine and be able to, you know, when when I was making my first records, it was it would have been illegal for me to bring certain influences into yeah. it. But I ended up doing it mm. just by being outside the group. So in a way, I've made that situation for myself, and so did you, you know, because you did, did the group and then you went off DJing and stuff. Yeah. So that's the definition of it. But. Um, but actually, at that time you're talking about, at the end of the 80s, at the start of the 90s, it was, it was a really good thing, I think, that people thought, you know, there was, there was an enemy. You know, public enemy number one was Phil Collins and Annie yeah. Lennox. And yeah. that was, it was very important we had these figures that were yeah. like, well, that I is wrong. Well, I lived with that. It was like, yeah. what I felt we were doing was countercultural. I don't think you have that now. That you, no. don't, you don't have any counterculture. No. And, um, you, you know, it's, 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 not, it's not cool to be uh, against things. <laughs> No, and we were really down against things in a way. And the alter- that we were and alternative music is now the mainstream. Yeah, you know, we used to have to fight to to be accepted on stations like Radio One, you know, and now BBC Radio is all over alternative music. It tries to define alternative music. Mm. You know, it's the gate. It's the gatekeeper to a lot of alternative music, especially stations like Six Music. That was never the case when we were growing yeah. up. To get played on on Radio 1 or something was, you know, it was impossible. It was like the dark ages mm. and um, it really was us v them. Yeah. And that thing you said about, you know, having almost rules what you should and shouldn't do, I felt that very strongly making the first Everything But The Girl record. I still felt we were very against the 70s at that point because it was not long after punk. So we wouldn't have any keyboards on our record because that was two 70s. <laughs> In spite of everything but the girl's reputation, their sonic reputation, there are no acoustic guitars on Eden. <gasps> no one hits a snare drum on Eden because that was too rock. <laughs> there were no acoustic guitars because that was too folk. You know, and it, all those kind of 70s stereotypes we tried to push out of the way. So we did allow horns because that felt quite kind of cool jazz and that felt quite permissible. Um, drums had to be hit with a cross stick because that was a bit more jazz. We allowed Hammond organ because that was a bit kind of jazz and blues and stuff. And it was like a, a manifesto yeah. that we had of yeah. what was permissible. And I think that that legacy went on for a long time yeah. in music making. Yeah, but, but now you can turn over, up. Yeah. You can turn up to a studio with a nose flute or a clarinet or a contrabass, mm. and everyone goes, "Yeah, man, that's cool. Let's just put it on the record." Mm. I can't decide if that's a good or a bad thing. <laughs> Well, you know, whenever, whenever you're oppressed about anything, it's normally a good thing to get get away from being repressed. Yeah. Uh, but uh, I think it, it creates good situations because it creates tension and uh, animosity and it creates, uh, yeah, and so something is created out of it. Um, yeah, in the same way, you know, you uh, yeah, the differences are, you know, it's like, you know, opposing football teams, you know, you, and or, you know, music went with your haircut, your, you know, the people you hung around with, what you watched on TV, what you read, you know, your politics, everything yeah. at that time. And um, no, it doesn't, mm. you know. Well, maybe it does in a different way. I don't know, maybe we're just old, Bernard. No, well, we are old anyway, but... Um, it's no, it's not. It's not that. I mean, it's a. You'd have to say it's a good thing that you can listen to everything, and you can, you're not repressed about it, and you can, you know, it bring every every influence into your life. You know, let's get that. that foot, come on, let's get no jacket required out, and you know, get that sound. You know, it's cool. You know, yeah, I like that after all. You know, <laughs> and um, 
and um you know it's good that you're not repressed against it because yeah, yeah there's low obviously loads of things i listened to in the 80s that that was like there's no way i'm ever going to listen to that that's yeah. ever going to come into my life or well, ever going to be seen the, talking the about thing it. That's but actually the back of my mind yeah. i was thinking yeah i like that bit the though. thing that's changed is irony irony is now allowed so yeah. in in post the postmodern music yeah. world irony is allowed so you can yeah. be the coolest french band in the world and suddenly say do you know what i'm really into phil collins and yeah. everyone sort of goes Hey, yeah, okay, that's kind of postmodern. Yeah, we'll accept that. We'll we'll go with that. But if you'd said that in 1985, someone would have punched you. Yeah, quite rightly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I think we probably said enough, Bernard. I think there's but far too much. Almost certainly, I think we've probably ruined our careers with that, haven't we? <laughs> careers. <laughs> <laughs> What's left of them? Yeah. Really? Yeah. I'm Elia Einhorn, and you've been listening to Ben Watt and Bernard Butler on the TalkHouse Music Podcast. During this talk, Bernard's bootlegging brother came up. It turns out I bought those bootlegs from his stall in Camden Market by the stack as a boy, after saving my allowance for our annual trips from my grandmother's home in Wales down to London. I loved learning that the two were related. Subscribe on Stitcher or iTunes for upcoming episodes like Emil Amos of Holy Sons with Stephen Malcolmus and Dan Deacon in conversation with Andrew W.K., Today's episode is recorded and mixed by Mark Yoshizumi. Till next time. Precious momentary grace. And you